We'll open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2. We're finishing up our little four-week series on this book this morning. I think in an appropriate uh, way, the week before Christmas, as the Lord has ordained it, I'm just amazed at how God lined up this text with the week before Christmas. It's probably not a sermon or a text I would have chosen as the week before Christmas, but upon uh, further review, I am convinced that it is the perfect introduction for our hearts to this week. Haggai chapter 2, let me read the fourth of his four sermons, which begins in chapter 2, verse 20. Haggai 2, verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders will go down. Everyone by the sword of another, one another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. One of the blessings of being a pastor, along with pastors all around the world each time during this part of the year, is preaching during the Christmas season. To take a Sunday, or for some, a series of Sundays leading up to December 25th, and direct the church's attention to the incarnation of the Son of God as he became a man from the portals of heaven is wonderful. And there is a wealth of Scripture from which we could choose to highlight the spectacular events of Christ's birth. We could, and we have in the past, Consider Christmas from the perspective of each member of the Trinity. The Christmas story meant something to the Father. It certainly meant something to the Son, and we certainly can see the Spirit involved. We can look at Christmas from Mary's perspective. We did that last year. We can look at it from Joseph's perspective. We can consider Christmas from Herod's murderous perspective. We could consider Christmas from the fields of the shepherds and their hearts, from the journey of the wise men. We could look at Christmas from the eyes of Simeon and Anna. We could see it through the aged view of Elizabeth and Zacharias and the prophecy and miracle they experienced. We could even consider Christmas from the perspective of the multiple angels who were involved in announcing Christ's birth to different people during the Christmas narrative. We could also study how each of the four Gospels describes Christmas and the Incarnation. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have a particular slant and angle on giving us highlights of what that meant. But there's another way to look at the Incarnation in the Bible. And that's the perspective that comes in the countless ways that the Old Testament 
predicts and prophesies and foreshadows the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus of Nazareth. Some of these are familiar. Some of these are very, very uh, common and in our understanding. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, God said, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. We call that the proto, the first evangelium gospel, the first look at the fact that God would provide a savior. We can look at Isaiah 7.14. We just read it in Matthew. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. She shall call his name God with us, Emmanuel. We could look at Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government of peace or of peace, on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We could go to a whole spectrum of passages that talk about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of God with us. And we have in the past and we will again in the future. But this morning we're going to have a view of the coming Christ from an unexpected perspective and an unexpected place in the Old Testament. As you know, you've been uh, with us the last month. We've been studying the book of Haggai and have come to the last section. Just a little review. This is two small chapters in what we call the minor prophets, which are only called minor because they are small, not because they have a minor message, right? Super important for us to understand the context and the meaning of these sermons. The context is this. Judah had been taken away for 70 years into captivity. They had been in Babylon. They had been uh, stowed away by the King Nebuchadnezzar who had stolen them, taken them back over to to Babylon as prisoners, as captives. They'd been there 70 years. It's now time for their return after the Persian kingdom had come and conquered Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, his name was Cyrus, the king. He was also prophesied in Isaiah 45 that by name he would be the one who would be the the decreer of the Jews' return to, uh, to Jerusalem. He's now on the throne and it's time for them to return. And just as the deportation happened in three waves, the repopulation happens in three waves, this first group goes back called the Faithful Remnant. They are given the opportunity to do what was super important for the entire nation, rebuild the temple. Nebuchadnezzar had burnt it to the ground, overturned the stones. It was a desolate temple mount. God tapped Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, the, the, the political leader and also supposedly the spiritual leader, to go back and rebuild the temple. That was the first thing to do so that when the people came back, they would see the glory of God on the temple. Well, when we open up the book of Haggai, it has been 18 years since that decree and the temple is not finished, but the people had paid particular attention to stocking up and, and decorating and paneling, as was the Hebrew word, their own houses and putting attention in their own comforts. So the book of Haggai comes where God sends this prophet named Haggai to tell the people to repent, to consider their ways, to come back to center, to come back to obedience. And we pick that up in chapter one. Now Haggai preaches four sermons during this book. 
there over the course of just a few months, and we've covered the first three sermons already, and I'll just highlight those, and then we'll jump into the fourth this morning. As we do, we looked at these, the breakdown of this, this uh, uh, structure of sermons, and we could see four step, a four-step plan, rather, for recalibrating your priorities. They had gotten their priorities out of line. They were dealing with themselves and taking care of themselves and not the the mission that the Lord had given them. So God gives them an opportunity to repent and he gives them a plan in these four sermons for pushing reset, recalibrating their priorities. The first one we looked at in the first chapter, verses 1 through 15, evaluate your resources and times. What Haggai does through God's word coming to him is he says, twice look at verse 5 consider your ways you can also look at verse 7 consider your ways. stop and see what you're doing have some evaluation consider what you're doing with your time and your resources he exposed the fact that they were using their time and resources selfishly for themselves and procrastinating honoring the Lord with their rebuilding the temple now the wonderful part about this sermon is that it ends on a high note they repent he says go get the new the uh, 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 resources from the woods and, and, and pull all your, your gold and your silver. Let's rebuild the temple. And they do. They re-engage the temple. And we've said over and over, if, if, the, if, if the book ended at the end of chapter one, that would be really sweet. But it doesn't. Because after chapter one, they come to another lull, another pause in the process. So Haggai preaches a second sermon which gives us a second in our four-step plan for recalibrating our priorities. Reset your standards of comparison. You'll remember that Haggai says, some of you remember Solomon's grandiose temple in its former glory. In fact, he says, how many of you remember that? And some of the senior citizens who were pushing 90 years old at that point raised their hand. They said, we remember it. And this temple is a shoddy shadow of what that was. They compared that to this. And they were comparing externals, but God was not looking at Solomon's temple versus their temple. He was looking at their heart versus his own standards. And they were being obedient. They were doing what they could with what they had. Well, also, at the end of that sermon, he says the the glory of this temple will be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. Now, they're looking at basically, in effect, a shack compared to a mansion and saying, how could that be? And we noted that this would be the temple, Haggai says, in which God would give peace. How did he do that? Because the When Jesus was crucified, it was in this temple that the veil between the Holy of Holies and the outer courts was ripped from top to bottom and peace between God and man was finally made away. They were comparing themselves to others, not comparing themselves to their own, the the commands that the Lord had given themselves. Then we went to the third sermon, which is our third step in recalibrating our priorities. Consider the blessings of repentance. He speaks specifically to the priests, to the, to the spiritual leaders, and he tells them that they have misunderstood what sin is and what holiness is. They thought sin and holiness spread in the same way. Remember that illustration I gave you from Alec Montier who says, if you take a, a dirty hand and you something, touch something clean, then you'll see a mark. Imagine having brand new uh, crispy uh, white sheets uh, on a bed and you just come in from, from uh, your hands being in the mud and you touch that sheet, you obviously see dirt on it. 
dirty hands can stain. But he says if you take a clean hand and touch something dirty, it doesn't make it clean. And the point is, sin spreads naturally and organically. Holiness takes effort and deliberation. They needed to re-understand what it meant to repent. And they did. And now, we come to his fourth and final sermon in which he says, remember the gospel of Christ. Now, we just read it a few minutes ago. You might read that and say, what do you mean, remember the gospel of Christ? Well, we stand on, on this side of the New Testament and understand things that Haggai was prophesying about that his people never saw in their day. And it's all related to the gospel in verses 20 through 23. Just a little background on this, a little uh, color on this sermon. It is the shortest of his four sermons, yet it covers the longest span of time. God speaks through Haggai beyond the date of his preaching, way down into the future when Messiah would come, and also to the very end of time. Let's pick it up in verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. Now, stop right there. This is obviously the fourth time. It's not the second time. It's the second time. Keep reading. On the 24th day of the month, saying, this same sermon that, this this sermon, rather, came on the same day that Haggai also preached the third sermon to the priests. December 18th, 520 B.C., if you want to do the, the math. Same date as the third sermon. And this is what God said to say to whom? Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying... Now stop right there. He has preached the first two sermons to the people, the third sermon to the priest, and now he gets even more narrow and more directed, and he says this sermon is all too Zerubbabel, but... Because Haggai wrote this down and recorded it for us, the people were also to listen to what he'd said to Zerubbabel. How would you like God to sit you on the front row of the church, preach a sermon just to you, and everyone else gets to hear it? That's exactly what's happening here. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I, God, am going to shake the heavens and the earth. Now, in verses 21 through 23, we experience what the Holy Spirit so often does in the Old Testament prophetical books. Are you ready for this? We will experience in these verses time travel. (laughs) Literally, time travel. He will take us to Haggai's time to the time of the Lord Jesus, and to the end of time, all at the same time. He takes us to the time of Messiah, then to his ultimate conquering of the earth. Now, if you remember from last time, this is an echo, or uh, uh, two times ago, this is an echo of what Haggai said in his second sermon. Look back up at verses 6 and 7. Haggai 2, 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going, future, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, also the dry land. I will shake all the nations, 
not just the physical dimensions, but the political dimensions of the world. And they will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house, his temple, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. That was to encourage the people during that sermon that even though they feared what they might lose if they obeyed, even though they feared what obedience might cause them in terms of persecution and being picked on by the surrounding nations, God says, I, in the end, am going to rock the world and these threatening nations that are around you will have no chance before me. He conquered their fear of obedience with this thought. I'm in control, I'm sovereign, I'm the judge, I will bring all wrongs to right, says the Lord. And we noted also during Haggai's second sermon, what we need to look at here, that this passage, both in chapter uh, 2, verses 6 and 7, and the text we're looking at here in his fourth sermon, is actually explained to us. What do you mean you're going to shake the nations and shake the heavens? The writer to the Hebrews actually uses this, quotes this, and explains it to us. And any time the New Testament interprets and implies a, 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 applies a passage for us, we ought to take note. So if, if you can, just turn over quickly to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Because the writer to the Hebrews picks up on these verses uh, about God rocking the world both physically and politically in Haggai 2 and explains these to us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That's interesting because we keep hearing in the book of Haggai, the word of the Lord came to Haggai saying, speak to the people, speak to the priests, speak to Zerubbabel. Do not refuse him who is speaking. There is a whole series of sermons in that little phrase. Do not refuse God who is speaking. How has he spoken? He's spoken to us in his word. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. He's saying, listen, rejecting God during this life is one thing. That will lead to a rejection in hell forever after death if you don't repent. Then he goes to Haggai in verse 26. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, oh, that's interesting. So he's saying something happened in the past where God had shook the nations. You can see this all throughout the Old Testament. He rocked Edom. He uh, dealt with Moab, uh, even on the, 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 the path uh, from uh, the wilderness to, to the land of Israel. He crushed these nations before Israel's armies. Just as he did then, though, there's something yet to happen. Now listen, the writer of the Hebrews uses Haggai's words as yet future during his day. That's important. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. He's talking about temporal and eternal, physical and spiritual. Therefore, this is it, verse 28, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, that's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So this is important. 
hundreds of years later, the writer of the Hebrews uses Haggai's words to say that is yet in the future from his day. So it was obviously in the future for Haggai. You see that? Now we go back to verse 22 in Haggai chapter 2. Look at the specific reference that the writer of the Hebrews is talking about. I will overthrow, God says, the kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow their chariots and riders. Their horses and their riders will go down. Everyone by the sword of another. This is talking about the strength of the threatening nations around Israel, which was causing them pause of obedience to God. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to overthrow the world. Do you know who I am? I'm the Lord of hosts. I'm the coming, conquering king. The interpretive challenge to this is that overthrowing the kingdoms and the nations, overthrowing the chariots and the riders, the horses and the horsemen, never happened in the lifetime of Zerubbabel. Never happened. Nothing like this actually ever happened from this point forward in Judah, the nation of Israel. And since we know that God never lies, we must assume this is now a futuristic prophecy, which is exactly how the writer to the Hebrews interpreted this passage. So, you might be saying, well, if it's yet in the future, what does this mean? Well, we are not left to chance. We're not left to guess as to what this is and when this is going to happen. In the book of Revelation, John describes how God pours out his wrath in a series of judgments. Some of them are described as unrolling of a scroll. Some of them are uh, described as pouring out the contents of bowls. Well, in the sixth bowl judgment recorded in Revelation 6.16, we find that the Antichrist at that time gathers kings together all in one place called Megiddo, the Valley of Megiddo, the Battle of Armageddon. These kings are loyal to the Antichrist. They're going to gather their armies with each other against the people of God. That's exactly what Haggai says will happen. We see the results of this war in Revelation 16, 14. Revelation 20, verse 7 to 9. Satan gathers the enemies of God around his people from the four corners of the earth or everywhere. And these texts inform us that they will there and then surround the camp of Christians, but fire from heaven will come and consume them and they will fight each other. Which is exactly what Zechariah says will happen. So Haggai is given a glimpse of the battle of Armageddon. This is when he shakes the nations politically. This is when he rocks the world physically. And he comes with his robe dipped in blood. Verse 23. On that future, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, Son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, 
and I will make you like a signet ring for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So here in this fourth of Haggai's four sermons, in this tiny little minor prophet, the shortest of his sermons, the most limited in its audience, we find the most expansive view of God and his kingdom. Haggai is going to be appointed a special mission. But there's more going on here than might meet the eye at first reading. The promise is speaking to the office of Zerubbabel held and not him personally. Now, this is very common. For example, Jesus is called the son of David, speaking of the, pro, the, the, the office of David as the leader and the king of Israel. But there's a lot of generations between David and Jesus. What are we talking about with this rubble? This didn't happen to him. He, he, he wasn't the signet ring. He didn't conquer the world. He didn't be the general of the final great battle. How do we know this is not Zerubbabel? Because in his day, there were no such revolutions from the nations for which he could conquer. And look very carefully at the grammar. Haggai says, in that day. He does not say, in this day. Obviously looking futuristic at this application. So what's the point? The messianic line, listen, the messianic line of Jesus, the conquering king who is, going to, who is going to come in the book of Revelation in the battle of Armageddon and make all rights, wrongs right, was to come through Zerubbabel. In a sense, Jesus could be called the son of Zerubbabel as well as called the son of David. Jesus is in view here. Now, how do I know that specifically? If you're still suspicious, you're thinking, ah, how do we know you're talking about Jesus, Haggai, God, Pastor Rick? How do we know? Well, look back at the text. See that little, little term, my servant? My servant is a, is a technical phrase used in Isaiah 42.1, Isaiah 40, excuse me, 52.13, that says, my servant is the coming Messiah. So he calls the son of Zerubbabel, the office of Zerubbabel, my servant, same as saying the Messiah. The Davidic dynasty serves as God's earthly representatives and Zerubbabel is in that line. This message is given to Zerubbabel, the uncrowned servant, excuse me, uncrowned son of David. To him, God announced the shaking of the heavens and the earth, the final overthrow of all the kingdoms of the Gentiles. And from Zerubbabel's descendants would spring the prince who would be called the son of God. So as Haggai finishes his prophecy in this fourth sermon, there's a call for the people to contemplate the coming king of the world. 
Moses just led us in a song a few minutes ago and I, and I wanted so bad to stop in the middle of the song and say, yes, that's what we're gonna talk about. The little phrase, what was promised, we believe. And that sets us in historical context. This was promised to Zerubbabel and the people of Judah that there would one day be a Messiah to come, my servant, God's servant, who would rule the world and make all wrongs right. That was promised. He has come and we have the opportunity to believe that he's come. We also understand he's coming again. As Haggai finishes this prophecy, he calls us as New Testament believers who understand that Zerubbabel's line would land in Jesus to contemplate Christ. They were to anticipate him. We have the privilege of remembering him. There's one more descriptor in this passage. He says, I will make you, I will make you like a signet ring, literally a seal now, a signet ring was not like you and I do where we have, you know, if, like my last name is Holland with an H so that people could see that's my last name. And th- that's nice, but this, this has something more in mind. A signet ring then was what you wore, which had an imprint so that in wet wax you could put your signet in to prove that that was authentically yours. That's what's going on here. I will make you my seal In other words, the coming Messiah, the son of Zerubbabel, God's servant, would one day be the signet ring, the signature, the very evidence of God in flesh. He would be God's signature. Listen, calling him like a sign, like like a seal, a signet ring, is the incarnation. That's what he's prophesying here. It's what we understand happened How does this relate to Christmas? Why does this relate to Christmas? Does this relate to Christmas? Turn over to Matthew chapter 1 for a moment. This is part of the New Testament that so many people read so fast so they can get to verse 18. They just want to get through this. They're not sure they can pronounce these these guys. They don't know why it matters. Can I show you why this matters? How many times have we read in the the book of Haggai, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel? Because the Holy Spirit made sure that we were paying attention to who this guy is. Matthew chapter one. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, 
Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham was the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amnon, and Amnon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Is that sounding familiar? Verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, also mentioned, by the way, in Luke 3, 27, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, has some significance. We read that over and over in, in Haggai. Every time we read it, I wanted to stop and say, It's coming! It's coming in the Christmas reading. It's coming. So one of Zerubbabel's son, the sons, the one who would occupy his office as the, the governor of Judah, the king of Israel, would be one of his descendants, one of his sons. Matthew keeps going. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Messiah, 14 generations. Now, hear it in context. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. When you read Joseph there, you are supposed to feel the tidal wave of that genealogy and all that it represents, including Zerubbabel's lineage, Shealtiel's lineage, related to the deportation to Babylon. Before they came together, she was found to be a child by the Holy Spirit. Miraculous, indescribable, unexpected, inexplicable miracle. As you know, later in the book of John, Jesus, when he's arguing with the Pharisees later in his life, 
they would say, we weren't born illegitimately, and they're, they're, they're jabbing him like you were. This would dog his reputation his entire life. That Mary was pregnant. No one in that time believed that, that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, which is what this says. They thought her and Joseph had been unfaithful or that Mary had been unfaithful. But nobody thought this. But we know this. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Just silently deal with it. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. That must have been a restless night. He goes to sleep. He goes to bed. He's thinking about this girl who's been betrothed to. He obviously has affection for. He's falling in love with, obviously. And she's pregnant. Not only that, she was pregnant with quite a story. I mean, we don't have to think much with our divine, rather sanctified imagination about the divine visit. Joseph, I'm pregnant. But it's not what you think. It's nothing like you think. And Joseph, what? What? No one had a category for this. No one did. God did. He goes to sleep. Joseph, son of David, an angel comes to him in his sleep. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She wasn't unfaithful. She wasn't immoral. She was a favored one. She will bear a son. This was before, <laughs> this was before reveal parties and before sonograms. No one knew if it was a boy or a girl until the child was born. This was the first pre-knowledge of a, kind of like we have with sonograms in history. You're going to have a son. Not only that, God picked out his name. You shall call his name Jesus, Aramaic for Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins. He'll be the Savior. Now, all this took place to, spo- to, to fulfill that which was spoken through the prophet back to our Older Testament. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is his other title, God with us, is what is translated. I love verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her aversion until she gave birth to a son and in faithful obedience he called his name Jesus. No doubt, friends and family were looking at Joseph and saying, are you crazy? You have every reason to divorce her. You, you, she's been unfaithful. And he's smiling, says, no, she's my wife. This is a special child. And they believed God, just as Zerubbabel believed God, and just as you and I are called to believe God. What was promised, we believe. You stitch that together with, we'll read in 
Haggai 2, and the babe who was born in Bethlehem is indeed the coming judge and king of the earth who will rule and reign and win the battle of Armageddon. The question we're left with is, are you ready to meet him when he returns? Are you ready to meet him? For those of us who know him, there's no fear There's no fear of any threat in this life. There's no fear of persecution. There's no fear of them rounding us up as Christians and persecuting us. That could all happen, but there's no fear because we know not how the story ends. We know who the story ends, the coming king. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn King, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That's salvation, and that's one day when he will make all to enjoy peace. Joyful, all you nations rise and join the triumph of the skies. One day the world will join in the Lord's, in the heaven's assessment of Jesus. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Can I keep going? Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man, man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen, he's alive from the grave. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild, he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And we say and we sing, hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. I don't know if you heard in Haggai or heard in Matthew or heard in this song I just quoted, Easter, but it's there. For him to come and win the battle of Armageddon in the end, for us to know that he was executed and truly killed on Calvary necessitates that he's alive. He's rose from the grave. Do you hear Easter in the echo of all of that? Which is why we keep saying and keep reminding ourselves, you cannot, cannot, cannot divorce Christmas from Easter or Easter from Christmas. Christmas tells us that this little one had a mission to die for our sins. Easter tells us that the one who died was God in flesh. They must come together. What was promised, we remember. What was promised, we believe. Which gives us an opportunity on this day to turn our attention very briefly to the Lord's table.